Kia ora koutou. Welcome to the New Zealand General Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Scott-Jones. Earlier seasons of this podcast focused on joy in practice. This season is an opportunity to listen in on monthly conversations I have with Dr. Dave Mapleston, organized for the Pinnacle GP Network. Dave shares insights into important clinical changes he picks up in his reading as a part-time GP and advisor to the Health and Disability Commissioner. I hope you enjoy. But uh, introducing Dave Mapleston, um, a colleague, widely read, who's going to, um, yeah, well, you introduce yourself, Dave. Okay, thanks. Kia ora tato. Yeah, I'm a GP, part-time GP. Um, I, uh, because I work part-time, I have the opportunity to go through a lot of the stuff that we get via email and um, on various sites. And I try and just take out things that might be of practical interest to um, my colleagues um, which I present on a monthly basis, and the the show notes have links uh, have links to various resources that I've found um, during my my travels. Without further ado, we'll uh, get on with our conversation. Thank you. What have you got for us this year, this month? Uh, yeah, it is March. It was, I finished this on the thirty first of March, so there's yeah. excuses for it being being um, April already. Um, First of all, just to say there's no COVID stuff in this, which I think might be quite refreshing for people. Yes. So um, I try and avoid COVID if at all possible, uh, practically and, uh, yes. and in my reading. <laughs> um, this week, we've got uh, just a, again, a bit of a trip around the, the human body, but starting off with um, an interesting New Zealand doctor article I looked at a couple of weeks ago, which was being pushed by New Zealand Drug Foundation and commenting on the limited availability of naloxone to selected patients with opioid dependence as a means of decreasing accidental overdose fatalities. Uh, so this is available in, in a few countries overseas, and in fact is available in New Zealand but on a very limited basis. So the th- sorts of things I found out were around 50 people a year die from accidental opioid overdose in New Zealand. And since 2020, there's been a, a, an over-the-counter kit available for naloxone nasal spray which patients can actually purchase, but it's around $92, uh, not funded, uh, and very few pharmacies are either aware of or actually stock the, um, the kit. So this is a kit that if you're a habitual um, opioid abuser, we'd have to say, and could be at risk of overdose, uh, and I presume if you're doing this amongst friends, because it's not much use to you when you're unconscious yourself, it's a kit that can be used immediately if there's a su- if there's suspected overdose to um, reverse the effects of the opioid. Naloxone ampules are still available um, on PSO, but a maximum of five ampules. And in some countries, um, there's a kit available, again, for opioid abusers that have um, two ampules of, of um, naloxone syringes and um, alcohol pads. So just a, a kit already to administer in case of accidental overdose. So Health Navigator's actually got uh, a few resources regarding community-initiated use of naloxone. 
um, including pamphlets developed by um, Waitamata DHB. Uh, so that, I'll just bring that up. So this is one of the um, pamphlets that would accompany the nasal naloxone emergency kit. So again, it gives instructions on how to use it. And this would be to give to the patient. Presumably the pharmacist might give this to the patient if they're selling the, the Nixoid kit, which is the naloxone kit. Uh, but yeah, just interesting stuff. I didn't, didn't even realize it was out there. The other interesting thing is around 3% of your patients on long-term opioids uh, for over two years are going to get uh, develop prescription opioid misuse disorder, which puts them at risk of overdose. And you can um, uh, use a um, six-point questionnaire, the Prescription Opioid Misuse Index, to try and determine if your patient is likely to have this disorder. Uh, and again, that's uh, available easily as a downloaded uh, sheet, which you can run through whenever you want. It talks about um, how to determine whether the, the patient has a disorder or not. So again, I mean, uh, you know, I suspect many of us have patients on long-term opioids, some of whom we might suspect of having opioid misuse disorder. And here's, a, here's an objective way of actually um, helping determine that. Interesting that they're taking a patient-led approach there with the way they're asking the questions of the patient you know do you ever have to pick up the medication early yourself do you ever find yourself taking more than those actually prescribed uh, and so on in the, in the hope that you would then um, see that as a problem and then seek um, help with that whereas a, we're very often in the position of recognizing those things happening to patients and then having to to challenge them uh, to help with the opioid management. Yeah, I think this is, this is yeah, this is certainly a, an easier way in to determine if there's a misuse going on. I, I guess that relies to some extent on the honesty of the patient. Um, well, it's like the alcohol questionnaire, thinking. isn't it? So they, you know, you, you, you read the questionnaire, you always sort of err on the side of being in the green as much as you possibly can. No, and I certainly don't drink a bottle of wine every night. Yeah. The, um, the, but, you know, it, it, it sows those seeds in your brain um, that, you know, you know, maybe I do have a problem and hopefully you will act on that as well. Yeah, and even you could even give it to the patient if you want yeah. you know, to be totally non-confrontational, just supply it to the patient because they're on long-term opioids. So they become aware of the risk, but also can, uh, can you know, reflect on it themselves. That's a really good approach. I mean, if, it, if they're saying that the risk increases after two years, then perhaps that's something to look out for in terms of those medication reviews yes. for the people that are on regular opiates just so to be saying, um, okay, well, this is now accompanying the prescription you know, here's this questionnaire just to, to get you thinking around, you know, the, the potential problems that might arise from here. And, and I think, in fact, MedSafe have recently published a pamphlet. Um, I haven't got, the, I've got the link there. I haven't brought it up, but uh, that could be given to patients on, on opioids longer term, which actually discusses, outlines the risks, including risk of developing misuse disorder. So again, that provision of information to the patient, I think can be quite helpful and something for them to reflect on. Um, and the other interesting thing, just, I mean, I love the HQSC Atlas of Healthcare Variation, which it's well worth visiting. There's a link, a link in the notes. Um, and it just looks at all sorts of prescribing and diagnostic issues. And you can uh, compare PHOs, large PHOs, smaller PHOs, uh, and look at variation in rates of um, prescribing or, or various interventions. So with the... Um, uh, with the prescribing of um, or dispensing of strong opioids for more than six weeks, the um, Midlands Health Network Waikato PHO was slightly below the national average of 2.1 uh, per thousand enrolled patients. 
but rates ranged from 1.5 for ProCare to 2.9 for Well South PHO. So quite a significant variation in in prescribing. But again, just uh, uh, really recommend that that um, atlas for for dabbling around if you have a spare moment. It's quite fascinating. Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, and it's a um, yeah significant problem. A significant problem. I mean, I could I could talk for an hour on yeah. on the opioid business. And I think we've. I mean, there's been lots of stuff. Has been lots of stuff coming out of um, BPAC in terms of management of chronic non-malignant pain and where to, what is the place of opioids, which in fact is very limited. Um, yes. But yeah, certainly an ongoing issue. Um, still sticking with medication, but this time um, the combined oral contraceptive and risk of venous thromboembolus uh, embolic disease, uh, which is old news, except that Medsafe have very recently put a prescriber update around the risk uh, following reports of a fatal PE in a young woman taking COC, and I've certainly had complaints in my HDC role um, of young women dying from PE uh, yeah. who have been on COC, and and it's a difficult one because when you're dead, it's usually, you know, you're not complaining, it's your family complaining usually, or, or your partner, so there's always a debate over where, where you're informed of the risks or not. It's very rarely documented in the notes when the COC was commenced, the risks were discussed, but Often the defence is, well, it's my routine practice to discuss these risks, and I would like to think that that certainly is, is everybody's routine practice. Um, but just a reminder that that really the counselling about risk of, of VTE and um, the sign, warning the symptoms and signs of it should be part of the initiation process uh, for prescribing, and best practice would be to document that you've actually discussed this. Is there an easy way of documenting that you've seen? Is there a way of that's sort of best practice for documenting? Yeah, I mean, some people just do a um, do a hotkey, which which just, just you know is quite a detailed. Um, mm. But that's again, I, I'm not a great fan of of hotkeys because they can be misused. Uh, what I tend to do when I'm prescribing now is, if it's new prescribing, is give um, print off the. Um, the NZF patient information leaflet and just document that I've given them the leaflet, which then covers the information that's in the in the leaflet. Uh, I, I sometimes I see risks risks slash benefits discussed, uh, but again that doesn't doesn't really specify what has been discussed. You've got to you've got to I think balance practicality with best practice, and we haven't all got the time to write um, half a page of every single detail that was discussed. But. Yeah. So the, um, if you print out the um, New Zealand formulary advice sheet, um, you know, having a, 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 a to whenever you prescribe a new medication, having a process of, of you know, practice of doing that, um, plus um, and recording that would be, be, you know, another way of approaching it, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, I, I have two screens now, which means I've got NCDF on one screen all the time uh, with the consultation notes on the other screen. So it's easy to, to flick, but I think certainly in indice there's a direct link to NZF anyway. Um, yeah. But you know, if, 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 you, if your practice software made it really easy to prescribe the information leaflet, like, you know, a button on the actual prescription form or when the drug comes up, that would be and better. That, I mean. Yeah. And that recorded that that had been done. Yes. Um, as yeah, well. That, and that, you know, that, would be, that would be the ideal, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so, so I guess the message is um, just ensure that patients are aware when you're initiating medication and also the fact that patients will get older, which puts them into a higher risk group once they're over the age of 35, and just remembering what the, um, what the contraindications are. Uh, and it, I have this, this issue around um, major elective surgery because on, on the hospital notes I see, I very rarely see that, that the combined oral contraceptive has been stopped in those patients undergoing major elective surgery. Uh, and I've certainly done a case of a woman having a cholecystectomy who, young woman who died of a PE um, a couple of weeks later and had taken her COC throughout. And the issue I was faced with was, was whose responsibility was it to get her to stop it um, prior to the surgery. Um, but anyway, that's an observation. This is from a really good BPAC article from 2020 on you know, lots of reminders about the COC. Um, but just remembering it's contraindicated in women aged over 35 who smoke more than 15 cigarettes a day as well. Gosh, I, 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 don't, I don't count the number of cigarettes that people are, are smoking. I just, if they're, if they're an active smoker, then I change them from the combined contraceptive pill yeah. at 35. I, that's really, the, I don't think, the safest thing. They, they um, document a precaution as being age 35 and fewer than 15 cigarettes as opposed right. to contraindication. But it's hard to imagine that that one cigarette a day will, um, will change it from being a contraindication. You know, going from 14 to 15 cigarettes a day changes it from being a precaution to a contraindication. Yeah. But, you know, again, it's like the alcohol question, isn't it? You know, I, I only smoke one or two cigarettes. Um, but, you know, when you actually count them, it may be a bit more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Third, third thing to cover is this rosuvastatin funding. Uh, so and just noting that from the end of, of last year, um, it's been funded using special authority for selected patient groups. Uh, and I think the, the breakthrough here, which is going to increasingly happen, I think, is that, uh, that uh, Pharmac have taken an equitable approach and are looking at um, fewer requirements for Māori or Pacific peoples to actually access the drug. So basically, you just have to be Māori or Pacific and high risk of cardiovascular disease to be able to access uh, resuvastatin. If you don't fit that group, there are specific criteria uh, related to the, um, your LDL cholesterol level um, to satisfy the special authority criteria, um, which is interesting in that the level, um, if you haven't got established heart disease, is actually higher than the target that the New Zealand guidelines set for statin therapy, which to me seems a bit disingenuous, but uh, that's the way it is. So 1.8, uh, if you've just got a calculated risk of over 15% or familial hypercholesterolemia, um, but down to 1.4 if you've actually got established cardiovascular disease. And there's a fancy, um, a fancy calculator, which I've um, got a link to, because we often see this familial hypercholesterolemia criterion and how do you determine that? And there is a... Um, the Dutch Lipid Clinic Network score, which uh, will tell you uh, if somebody is at risk or not. Um, and the uh, I've just completed one here on a patient who's got definite familial hypercholesterolemia. Basically, it asks any first-degree relative with cardiovascular disease, um, first-degree relative with um, xanthometer or arcus cornealis, um, under age 45, although I'm not sure how many uh, of your parents or siblings you've looked into their eyes to see if they've got a uh, Anarchus cornealis, uh, history of premature, or patient history of premature coronary artery disease um, or cerebrovascular disease, 
uh, whether the patient has an arcus cornealis or tenthin zanvomitor, uh, highest LDL cholesterol concentration, and if you've only got measurements um, since the patient's been on lipid-lowering therapy, you can actually plug in uh, what therapy they were on at the time, and it will determine uh, what their likely untreated LDL cholesterol was, and then give you a um, give you a, a um, um, definition of whether they've got familial hypercholesterolemia or not. So uh, that's on athero.org.au. The calculator there, which is the Australasian calculator, uh, and could be handy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and a recent back article, um, I think earlier this year, uh, talks in some detail about advantages of rosuvastatin, uh, contraindications, and precautions. Uh, and there's a link in the notes to that. Uh, we go from heart to ovaries. So, again, this is a perennial one. And again, I, I regularly see probably at least one complaint a year about delayed diagnosis of ovarian cancer. Um, and New Zealand doctor again had a recent article on on um, issues related to delayed diagnosis. And New Zealand doesn't actually do that well compared to other uh, similar countries. It's also um, higher incidence and mortality rates in Pacific and, and Maori women. Uh, and 16% fewer women survive five years in New Zealand compared with Australia. So uh, they explored some of the reasons for this, um, noting first that on average a GP with 2,000 patients will see one patient with ovarian cancer every four and a half years, and trying to determine reasons why countries with similar health systems to ours might um, have better survival rates. They found that practitioners in countries with better survival rates are more willing to order an ultrasound at first visit for the following scenario. A 53-year-old woman who had her last period six months ago and has experienced abdominal pain for the past three weeks. She has had no other symptoms in the same sexual partner for 20 years, which raises the whole issue <laughs> of, <laughs> of, of our, you know, our, our restricted access to ultrasounds in secondary care and the hoops we have to jump through to um, to access these. So just other things we know, ovarian cancer is much more common in postmenopausal women, but in New Zealand, one in eight cases still occur in women younger than 45. Um, and in the 20 to 44 age group, ovarian cancer remains the fifth most common cause of female cancer death. Uh, and younger age um, at presentation is, is a risk factor for delayed diagnosis. Uh, so the symptoms, as you know, are symptoms we see every day in, in women um, and the, the, the article acknowledged that, that they're very common symptoms in, in general practice but in women without ovarian cancer they're usually mild and occur on five or fewer days a month so if the presentation pattern seems to be of more severe symptoms that are occurring more frequently um, it's certainly worth considering the, that ovarian cancer is a potential diagnosis uh, and I've got a link to a downloadable symptom diary that you can hand to a patient if necessary and, and build up a picture of the frequency and severity of symptoms over a period of time. Um, and really just a plug for health pathways. I get totally confused about CA125, when it should be ordered, and when it shouldn't be ordered, and what to do with the result. Um, but the health pathways gives you very clear advice on managing patients um, Based, but based, based, or when to order CA125, but then based on uh, ultrasound scan result and the CA125 level and age, 
uh, what you do need to do with the patient after that. So any confusion, I think, go to uh, go to Health Pathways, and that should help help sort it. I, I followed uh, a, a, from another locum working in a practice, and and my, my the predecessor had done CA one twenty fives on anybody with any sort of abdominal pain, um, and uh, it, which was quite. Um, it was a real contrast to my own practice because I very, very, very rarely do it. Um, and I, I'm probably the, the opposite. I probably don't do it enough. I think, yeah. it, I think it depends on, as with everything, on um, the, the, the probability this patient has ovarian cancer. So it's, it's not, not great as a screening tool and not recommended at all as, a, as purely as a screening tool for ovarian cancer. So no point in doing it on all postmenopausal women every year as a screening test for ovarian cancer. That would be totally inappropriate but in terms of investigating symptoms which means you're not using it as a screening test yeah i guess that's where it you know maybe we need to be doing it more frequently um but I, but again i think you'll get differing opinions from from different gynecologists and i know again looking at at hospital notes there have been some gynecologists that insist on a um a ca125 before they'll see a patient with you know suspected ovarian cancer and others that you know, don't seem to insist. Mm. Um, and but that getting access to an ultrasound is, you know, yeah. it makes it, it makes a that is a, a significant challenge. Yeah, and, um, I, and I think that brings up the issue uh, that it, it's really important to always offer patients the option of private, um, yeah. a private assessment when there are constrained resources in the public sector, which to me, possibly heightens inequities. Yes. Um, but you will certainly get a complaint if you if somebody has waited three months for an ultrasound that shows they've got ovarian cancer and they were never offered the opportunity of um, of accessing it in a couple of weeks in the private sector. Uh, but it, again, it's a flaw in our system in our health system currently, um, which would be really nice to see resolved. The, do you think there's a role for point of care ultrasound in the GP clinic in this at all? The... Um, I think that the problem there is maintaining uh, a standard that means you've got the appropriate sensitivity yeah. of picking up an, an abnormality. So you may not, unless you're doing them frequently and um, you're accredited, you, you know, if you miss one, then it's, it's really hard to come back from that. I suppose there's no harm in doing it and finding something that, that then alerts you to say, even if you, you say, look, you know, there's something on my point of care ultrasound, which is showing something here, it may bump somebody up the, um, the waiting list. Um, whereas if you, you, you're not taking a negative result and saying, okay, I've excluded ovarian cancer on the basis of my point of care ultrasound, um, but uh, using it as a, an adjunct to support your diagnosis. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's a bit like sticking your finger up the backside. And if you, if you feel a tumor, well, that's going to hasten the, the patient's review. If you feel nothing, you're still going to refer them. But um, delicately put, Dave. Delicately put. <laughs> and in fact, uh, you know, just while we're on that topic, um, you know, I sometimes see the failure to do a, a rectal examination on someone with suspected colorectal cancer. Um, the defence being put forward that, that they were being they were being um, referred for colonoscopy anyway. But in fact, that because a palpable tumour drops you from changes you from the six week to the two week category 
yeah it's still really important to do and the six-week category for many dhbs now ends up being you know a couple of months if not longer yeah um so uh, um yeah I think it's yeah really important to, to be thorough. If you, if you don't put your finger in it, you put your foot in it, was the it's, message I got from the medical school. I remember that, uh, uh, yeah, indelibly yeah. burned on my mind. Yeah. Um, fifth one's just a, a, another recent MedSafe prescriber update and reminder. Uh, following the death of a patient co-prescribed methotrexate and trimethoprim, which is it can cause bone marrow suppression quite rapidly, uh, fatal in some cases, and should be avoided trimethoprim or cotrimoxazole should be avoided in patients taking methotrexate. So again, because it's something we have commonly used for UTIs and, and it's easy just to flick off the, the script, even sometimes, you know, when the nurse has done a dipstick and comes in to say, you know, they've got a UTI, can you just do a quick script? Yeah. That your your, P, your um, PMS should give a warning, but, you know, I know from personal experience, the warnings, I have, I get warning fatigue sometimes of, things jumping out you know the fact that they're on a a topical corticosteroid uh which you know jumps yeah. up as if they are taking 80 milligrams of prednisone a day or something like that yeah uh, but again just a reminder and maybe um, i don't know quite how you how you enhance um the awareness that somebody's on a drug like methotrexate um because again alert fatigue is a recognized phenomenon as well but just a reminder with that one mm-hmm uh, and the last one's really just information only um, around the Thunderpen, EpiPen rollout. Uh, so that's, it is active again. I, I'd been reading or, or looking on the GP Facebook that there was some feeling that, it, that there were no pens left or there was an issue in that regard. But the issue is more around supply of the pen at the moment because of um, shipping issues. So you can still access a free EpiPen for your patient um from pro- hopefully they've received the the supplies this month april 22 was the earliest they were expecting them and i've just run through the process that you go through to um gain a funded epipen for your patient they're only dispensed from queenstown pharmacy um and you need to fax the well i presume you can email or fax the script to the pharmacy yep just the the um criteria for funding uh, down there so that's it for the month of April. Thank you, oh, the month Dave. Of May, the month of March, sorry. I've got, March. I've, got, I've got April brewing already, but um, we can do that later. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. That's really amazing work that you do uh, with this. I, we've got the uh, a few audience members joining us today, so I might, I might sort of open the floor for comments or questions. I saw Marlene had put something in the, in the chat. Oh. So you, you oh, use a, a, a drop-down menu to help remind people about the combined uh, contraceptive pill? Issues, how does that work, Marnie? Um, Joe, it's, it's just in screening, when you uh, put in your new screening, um, uh, the, you know, the blank box, you just put um, CRCP and then all the questions are there and you can say whether they have um, liver problems, you know, a family history of um, um, clots, or any, all the things are there and whether they're a smoker or not, it's just to remind you, that you and you don't forget any of the questions. And yep. then, of course, when you're done, it populates as um, as a document uh, below your um, notes, your clinical notes. So it's, it's just something to help. We have the same thing for our six-weeker um, examinations and so on. So, But that type of thing can really help. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The the anything that provides that framework, particularly where there's a lot of um, steps to a procedure, a, a process, and, the, and the automatically documenting it in your record uh, as well is 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 really really helpful. Yeah, um, yeah. 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 We've actually been advised at one stage when I did my fellowship that we should ask those questions every time. You know, there's yes. always also something like with a migraine. Uh, all of that is uh, in in the questionnaire. Mm. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, I think so. There was a uh, this question of um, VTE in um, uh, young women on a combined oral contraception um, is one of the reasons why we uh, are one of the the cases why we need to do regular medication review, um, Dave. And there was a, um, at one stage, it was, you have to do a medication review every six months for all patients. My understanding was that recommendation came because of a, a person who had been on regular contraception. Something had changed in the family history and um, she'd um, suffered a, a, um, a VTE um, event. I'm not sure what the outcome of that was, but uh, and now there's a little bit more leeway in that we should be doing regular medication reviews every 12 months. Um, if somebody's stable on a medication, then we can, you know, maybe extend it out a little bit further. If it's a low risk medication, I understand, so it's a little bit more nuanced. Um, but um, a lot of repeat prescribing policies and practices that I see say everybody will be seen every six months. You know, for if they we don't we don't do repeat prescriptions beyond that, um, and it, it my understanding is it originated from a, a VTE case. Yeah, I think um, a, a case that came up for discussion recently on again on the GP Facebook page I saw was which I commented on was a um, patient who was on regular anti-epileptic medication and had a um, uh, you know died suddenly unexpected death associated with epilepsy but hadn't had a and it, it turned out that he wasn't taking one of his medica one of his epileptic medications and, and hardly taking the other. And he hadn't had a formal review of his medication for a couple of years, I think it was. Yeah. But in fact, on, on, on looking to see, well, what is the standard in this regard? Nowhere is it written 12 months, six months, 18 months, or whatever. It's just as, you know, as clinically indicated. Okay. So it's so there is no, as far as I'm aware, there is no specific defined. Um, you must be seen at this interval time frame, and it becomes a it becomes a clinical um, decision. Yeah, Natalie, you've you got your hand up. Yeah, thank you. Um, thanks, Dave. It was a little bit. Um, I did. I wasn't aware of the trimethoprim methotrexate. So thanks for highlighting that. Um, you know. I, I rely quite a bit on um, our pop-up contraindications when we order medication, um, but realistically having a, a robust medication review plan is important and something that we're, I would say we're just not doing in primary care adequately. Um, our clinical pharmacist is such a good tool. Um, we've had one in our practice um, for two sessions per week and if that person was there on a reg, you know on a, a full equivalent it would be that would be exactly where I would use that person because it, in fact to be honest that would be even the better person to be doing that sort of review I think in, uh, you know in our we just don't pick up on some of those um, con you know cross reactions as well in prime as GPs it's not something that I'm great at, to be honest. So 
would be really useful to going forward, giving all of our staffing issues to have that sort of setup where we rely on um, clinical pharmacists more. I agree, certainly agree with that. Um, quite a few of the DHBs try to do a um, get a pharmacist medication review within 24 hours of patients being admitted, and the detail in those is that are done is just incredible and almost everyone I've ever seen they pick up on something that is best avoided or has a potential to do harm and whether it's prior prescribing in primary care or something that's been added in secondary care um, but yeah I, you know from a patient safety point of view it would just be such a valuable asset to have in primary care. Thanks Dave that was absolutely awesome see you again later on in the in the month very much. Thanks for listening. Please like and share this podcast if you found it useful. The show notes on the podcast website contain links to all the resources that we discussed. A video version of this podcast is available on the Pinnacle Practice website at pinnacle.co.nz. Ka kite anō.